up, Sassanacs. It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassanac Files. This week, we're discussing Season 5, Episode 5, Perpetual Adoration. But before we get into that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassanac Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassanac Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlanders season six and seven, all the cast projects coming up, and of course, anything Diana Gabaldon gets up to. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of 505 Perpetual Adoration. This episode is one of those that kind of gets better with a rewatch. It wasn't one that I was fond of the first time around, but I think it's because there are so many different layers to this episode that you really have to watch it multiple times in order to get all of the tiny little connections that make this episode not great, but better than the original viewing experience. There were some editing choices, some script choices that still kind of take me out of the episode, but overall I felt that this episode was very interesting, the whole concept of time and how one person's human experience and decisions rippled down throughout the eons is a very compelling topic for me. So I can't wait to break stuff down for you guys. There is a lot to talk about in this episode, and I even cut out a few topics that were kind of irrelevant to how this episode shapes out in the grand scheme of things. The first thing that I want to discuss is the cold open, because I feel like in order to fully grasp this episode and kind of the nuances of the formatting, how it's written, things like that, we need to talk about this first couple of scenes in the cold open. It all starts with a voiceover. It's Claire saying, how many times had I put my hopes, my fears, my secret longings into the hands of a being I can't see, can't hear, can't even feel? And how many times have my prayers been answered? So it calls into question the idea of this higher power, this infinite and omnipotent being that is out there in the universe. And it talks about throughout the entire episode how that being potentially affects the lives of everyone that is here. How do each person's personal decisions and free will affect the lives and outcomes of different situations throughout time? I think this is all illustrated with the Graham Menzies story. There are multiple things in this episode that are tiny little callbacks to different things that we have experienced in this show that we've witnessed these characters going through or mentioning that you may not even notice. It reminds me a lot kind of on a more subtle level of the season five finale. I'm not going to get into it because if you haven't seen it, I don't want to spoil it. Like if you're watching along with me, I don't think there's anybody out there that's doing that. But if there is, this is for you. I'm not going to spoil what happens in the season five finale. But like this episode, there are all kinds of little echoes to things that have happened throughout the series so far. 
And it's very interesting because each of those little mentions or tells connects back to an iconic moment that immediately stood out. And we even get some foreshadowing into things that will happen in future episodes. So I will give a little spoiler alert before I talk about that on the off chance that some of you who are listening have not watched ahead. But anyway... The idea of time and the concept of time is front and center in this episode. While the concept of time is fascinating, I also kind of feel like the writers of this episode were beating a dead horse a little bit by the end of it because I understood what was being told to me without the second, third, fourth, fifth voiceover. And at some points, I felt like they may have sped up the voiceover. It just felt really fast, like there weren't those natural dialogue pauses that there should be. It almost felt like Katrina was reading a book instead of telling a story. And I think that, more than anything, is what pulls me out of the episode with the voiceovers. The tone of her voice just was very not abrasive, but just wasn't connected to the dialogue and what was happening on the screen, I guess. And so it felt sort of alien to me at a couple of points. But the editing also, it took me a minute to get used to how they were editing this episode with the repetitive style of showing her kneeling on the altar over and over again and little things like that. I get that they did it to kind of show that this is something that Claire did over and over again as she's saying those words, how many times had I put my hopes, my fears, my secret longings into the hands of a being I can't see. So it makes sense. On an intuitive level, it makes sense that they would edit it this way. But I kind of felt like They didn't need to have those words at the beginning if they were going to show us the exact same thing. So just a bit too much repetition for my taste. But like I said, it's something that you kind of get used to as you watch the episode more. Like it's it's more palatable, I guess, if you rewatch it. As we get further into the story, the concept of time becomes more ingrained in it. It's not just something that they're talking about anymore. They begin to show it. And the the whole character of Graham Menzies is a very interesting character because it's actually a combination of two characters from the books. Claire did have a patient that died in the books, but he didn't die of a penicillin reaction. That was a different patient that Claire had. I get why they combined it because it streamlined the whole process and that is kind of how you have to operate on a TV show. You can't have a million different characters to showcase a million different storylines. So it's just easier this way and I understand it and I don't have a problem with it whatsoever. But the presence of Graham Menzies also exists first off to show how much Claire has changed. We don't really get a sense of her in a professional setting very much in the show when it comes to the 60s. We see her interactions with those closest to her, with Frank, with Brianna, with Joe, but we don't really see that interaction between her and her patients. And I really thought that it's very easy to see how closed off and almost cold Claire has become in the 20 years since she separated from Jamie. And you can see her start to thaw as she gets to know Graham Menzies. 
And I just find it so tragic because she literally lets her guard down, lets herself get attached, as she put it, and then the rug gets ripped out from underneath her. Like, she just gets walloped when he dies. And I think that was really tragic for her. And it also serves as the catalyst for everything that happens moving forward from Dragonfly and Amber on in the show. None of that would have happened without Graham Menzies. So that's why we get his presence in this episode. All of that being said, if you take this episode and just pull it out of the season and watch everything else, you don't really notice that it's gone because there wasn't really very much that happened in this episode that was relevant to the rest of the season. Now, the exception to that would be Roger and Brianna's storyline. And I really think that that isolated storyline alone was probably the one thing that you miss the most if you don't watch this episode. So when we're talking about callbacks and we're talking about echoes and ripples in time, this whole concept is very reminiscent of the butterfly effect. If you do one thing, how does that one action ripple out and affect other people's lives and futures and existence even? It's a very, very interesting rabbit hole to go down. And it's explained in one of the voiceovers as Clara's pondering, if God exists, is he the spider in the web or is he simply the weaver of the web watching the monsters in all of us come out to play, basically? It's very interesting. And I think that the presence of religion in this episode, as bad as it sounds, is one of those things that kind of turns me off to it. I don't know, because the show is not overly religious. There's not a huge emphasis on God and his existence. And then all of a sudden, it is just front and center. And that's all we flipping talk about for the entire episode. I mean, it's okay. I don't have a problem with Christianity and religion in general. That's not what I'm saying. I don't have a problem with that. It's just I kind of felt like this was the equivalent of Bible thumping a little bit, which is why I'm a little nervous for season six, because I know that that's going to be kind of a major focus in season six. It's just like these characters are Catholic. They do believe in God and a higher power and his authority over the domain of earth and the human race. I understand that. And I don't think that that was ever something that was lost on any of the audience. So like I said, a lot of this episode was kind of irrelevant in my eyes because it's not telling us anything that we don't already know, I guess, is kind of why the whole God thing bothers me. Because I don't feel like that's something that I need to be told. It's something that I already know about the show. And I don't think that's because I'm a book reader. I think that's because I'm an observant watcher and I love the show and I love these characters. And I think that if the characters are written properly, it's not difficult to see that religious aspect of their characters, especially in Jamie. Claire, not so much, but she makes a comment in the very first episode, Sassanac, she says that her Catholicism was nominal at best. 
So I guess that's one echo that we see is perhaps she gains a little bit of religion throughout her time with Jamie and apart from Jamie. And I think that that may be a parallel that she has with Graham is Graham feels closest to his dead wife when he's at perpetual adoration. And he makes a comment that it's how he feels close to Olivia and he likes to think of it as her way of keeping him close as well. So I think that Claire may find that bit of peace with Jamie in that space of perpetual adoration. In the books, Claire's perpetual adoration attendance isn't stimulated by her meeting someone else. It all stems from the perpetual adoration experience that she had in book one while they were at the Abbey while Jamie was recovering from what happened at Wentworth. And so it's just something that she does regularly whenever we get to the 20th century in Voyager. This storyline was a bit of a a surprise or a fresh take on something that was in the book series. But nonetheless, I mean, I don't I don't mind new things. It keeps it interesting. Like if you know what's going to happen, what's the fun in watching, you know? So I do think now that I'm saying it out loud that probably the religious aspect of this, especially when we're looking at the 20th century, is probably Claire's way of staying close to Jamie because I do think that hands down he is the more religious of the two. I think that Claire believes in God and she is religious to an extent, but not nearly as religious as Jamie. But when we look at the idea of echoes throughout this episode, which I find it interesting that that's how I'm referring to this because echoes is the episode title for the season six premiere that we have yet to see for much the same reason that I'm talking about echoes in this episode. So if you want more details on that, feel free to listen to the season six episode that I did with Angela back a few months ago. There are certain things in the dialogue of characters and certain actions and story parallels that happen in this episode that really are callbacks to prevalent things that have happened previously in the series or foreshadowing for things that will happen later in the series. And it all kind of pulls together with this idea of a time continuum concept that everything is interconnected. We get the first little breath of this in the scene between Bree and Roger when they're laying in bed after Roger comes home from Brownsville and they're talking about their futures. Roger was dreaming of McKenzie University and how he was glad that he pleased Brianna with his bedroom prowess. And she says, methinks you sell yourself short, me lad, or something like that. And he said, accent hasn't improved much, which is just a little giggle between them. But if you'll remember back in Dragonfly and Amber, when we first met Roger and Brianna, they had this little rapport between each other when they were at Fort William in the future. And Brianna says, we Randalls are a complicated clan, laddie. <laughs> and he says, that is the worst accent I have ever heard. So that is the first little echo that we get. So it's not all super interconnected, dramatic moments that we're getting these little 
reflections on. It's pulling on our knowledge base of this world and showing that, hey, we can pull some one line from an episode three seasons ago and refer to it here. And that's going to have significance in this conversation. The second one, which I find it funny because I think it was Casey when I was reading through these comments that you guys put up to have read in the listener comments section of this episode. I think it was Casey that said the line about it's only one more scar sounds like something Jamie would say. Well, I am here to tell you that it is something that Jamie said. He says... Tis only one more scar, nothing worth brooding over. And Jamie said that exact same line in By the Pricking of My Thumbs after he gets in the sword fight with the McDonald's after the Duke of Sandringham's duel. And Claire is stitching him up and he says, oh, it's only one more scar. So that is another callback. And I think that's what gives Claire pause Because I do think that the guy that plays Graham has a very similar voice to how Sam's Jamie voice sounds. And he does say, tis only one more scar, and Claire stops, and her eyes kind of widen because she remembers Jamie saying that to her. I mean, Graham was already kind of opening the floodgates a little bit on how Claire was feeling about everything. Whenever he says that, it's just like, oh my God, she can't help but feel Jamie in the room with her, I feel like. She tries really hard to compartmentalize everything and keep it in a box and not talk about it because she wasn't allowed to when Frank was alive. And so that's just kind of her auto setting at this point because Brianna doesn't know about Jamie at this point in time. Having Graham Menzies, who has such an amiable personality and reminds her so much of Jamie with his devotion to his wife, it really is hard for her to ignore things like this. And when he says something that Jamie himself said to her, it gets these wheels turning on what is connected in time and how do things echo throughout the years. A huge thing that we see a parallel in And it is kind of pointed out, but I'll I'll say it for the sake of those who may not have seen this particular parallel, is the similarities between Brianna's story and Jimmy's story. Brianna grew up in a household with Frank being her father, but he's not her biological father. So part of the argument between Roger and Brianna is Roger is okay with being Jimmy's father. The argument was never about Jimmy's paternity. It was about the dishonesty factor and that Brianna doesn't feel like she can tell Roger everything and Roger needs to know everything. When he's been out in the backyard stewing all night, basically, I think he's probably turned over in his head multiple times the fact that Roger was there when Brianna learned that Jamie Fraser was her father. He saw how that affected her and he saw how angry and upset she was. Whenever he has the opportunity to ask Claire about it, he asks, do you ever regret that decision to keep Brianna's paternity a secret? And Claire says no, because it was more important that Brianna felt safe and loved. And Roger says, 
but you guys became closer in the end. And so surely that means the honesty is the best policy. And she says, not always. The truth really can hurt, Roger. And you saw that for yourself. But I think the key concept to grasp here is that Stephen Bonnet is not Jamie Fraser. There is a huge difference between telling your child that her biological father is a man that your mother loved and that he loved you in return versus telling your child that he is the product of an evil, evil man raping your mother. That That is a completely different story. And so I feel like while they're drawing that parallel between Brianna and Jimmy and how they're being raised in the world, it's a very different set of circumstances when you look at it in the grand scheme of things. When Roger and Claire are having this discussion, I feel like there are a couple of things that really stand out to me. First is that I absolutely love the relationship between Roger and Claire. Every time we get a scene with them, I am like, oh my god, I love them together. I think that Rick Rankin and Katrina Balfe have such a great chemistry. Their mother-son dynamic is so magnetic. They always have these wonderful, valuable discussions, and it makes me long to get the scenes on the other end of Jamie and Brie, and we get so few of them, it breaks my heart. But I really do appreciate the value of these scenes that Claire has with Roger. There's always something very vital that is transcribed in these conversations. I think one of the ironic things that is brought up in this conversation is Claire's like, oh, I take it you haven't been out hunting all night. And he says, oh, the hunting ruse wasn't fooling anybody. (laughs) And she says, call it mother's intuition. And Roger fires back with, I wish I had a bit of husband's intuition. I love that Claire tells him that intuition is developed through listening and experience. It is not something that you're born with. It's based on the social experiences that you have been put in and how you and the people around you have responded to those situations. Roger makes a comment that... It just seems to come so natural for Claire and Jamie. And she says, but you forget, Jamie wasn't my first husband. We see, again, the callbacks to earlier in the show when the relationship between Frank and Claire was super rocky for most of their marriage. They had a good little bit in the very beginning when they were newlyweds and then they got sent off to war and they didn't see each other for three years. And then they came back and they were no more getting to know each other again. And Claire fell through the stones. And by the time she came back, she was a completely different person. And Frank was a completely different person. And it was hard to keep their marriage together. Claire learned a lot about communication and marriage in general through those 20 years. I feel like that inherently had an impact on her relationship with Jamie. Now, there's no doubt that Claire and Jamie have more of a chemistry and they understand each other better than Claire and Frank ever did. So they naturally have that on their side. But then you also add in the fact that they also had 20 more years of life experience when they came back together. And 
for Roger to observe a full-on working marriage, that's something that he hasn't ever really witnessed before because his dad died. He doesn't really have any real memory of his father, let alone his mother and father together. And then he lived with the reverend his entire life, who obviously wasn't married. And so Jamie and Claire are his first real observance of that kind of relationship. And that's a lot. It's a lot of pressure for a newly married man to see that and to think that that is what his marriage should be. That anything less than that is just failure. So I think that it was good of Claire to remind him that, look, you got to take this at your own pace. This isn't our first rodeo, either one of us. And you're going to have to learn along the way. It's not all just immediately there. And you're not born with this intuition that you're searching for. I think that that is something that while Claire is saying it at Roger, it's also worth noting that it's kind of breaking the third wall a little bit. Like Claire and Jamie weren't just automatically this perfect together. They did have a little bit of a rough start. Granted, they have a great relationship. They're both inherently honest, and I think their personalities jive well together. So they were naturally going to work well together. But it's not necessarily an instant case of them working this miraculous marriage and that they never have their rough patches ever. We see it more in the show as this perfect little relationship that nothing can crack and that they never fight and things like that. And that's why I like the next episode so much, because they actually do have an argument for the first time in like a couple seasons. So yeah, it's good. I liked that conversation between Roger and Claire that kind of showcases the mother-son relationship that they're developing. As we're already talking about Brian Roger, I will go into that a little bit because, like I said, I feel like this is the one portion of this episode that was absolutely vital for people to watch it and to understand what they're watching and witnessing. This is huge for Roger and Brianna. Brianna has known for months now that Stephen Bonnet is alive and she's kept that to herself. She hasn't bothered to tell Claire or Roger about it. Obviously, she knows Jamie already knows, and I think she probably just assumes that Claire knows as well, which that would be a correct assumption. But Roger doesn't know. And when he finds out that Brianna's been keeping all of this from him, I think it's really hard for him to not be upset about it. I identify with that because I'm that kind of person. Like, I may not like what you have to tell me, but at least be honest with me and I'll deal with it. You know, don't lie to me because a lie of omission is still a lie. And so in Roger's eyes, Brianna's just been lying to him for all this time. And I think that's really hard for him because he puts all of his faith and trust in her implicitly and he expects the same in return. I don't think that's too much to ask in a marriage. While I get that Brianna went through something extremely traumatic and she's still kind of reeling from it and trying to deal with her post-traumatic stress, I understand that. But if she doesn't tell anybody what she's going through, then people can't help her. And I understand that that's one of the things about trauma is that you don't always feel like you can talk about it. I get it. But what we also have to understand is that When a person suffers a traumatic event, it's not just them going through it. 
It's everybody that's close to them that is also going through this experience with them. They're not experiencing it firsthand, but they're experiencing the reactive nature of this post-traumatic stress. And they feel it. Everybody feels what Brianna is going through. They may not know 100% what it is that is bothering her or why she is acting the way that she's acting, but they can sense that something's wrong. So I think that when Roger discovers that there is way more to this Stephen Bonnet story than Brianna has bothered to share with him, it's kind of the last straw for him because all he wants from her is honesty. He wants to be able to help her. He's a very caring individual. And if he doesn't know what's wrong with her, how is he supposed to be there for her in the way that she needs him to be there? It's a tough situation. And couple that all together with the fact that in the season five premiere, he accepted Jimmy as his own and swore a blood oath that Jimmy would be his son henceforth and forevermore. There would be no divide, whether it was blood relation or not. He's the son of his heart, and that is how he will be treated. While I believe in in Roger's heart, he truly, truly feels that way, and he meant that oath that he made, it stings to know that Brianna told Stephen Bonnet that Jimmy was his baby. It stings because... Why would she bother to tell this asshole that he fathered her child? Why? Why does it matter? Obviously, Brianna's feelings in the matter didn't matter when he raped her, so why? I think that's hard for anybody to understand that level of empathy, I guess. I personally don't get it. I mean, if she wants to be that person, like, good on her, but I'm not that merciful. And so for me, that whole situation just kind of sent me reeling. I get it that she thought that Roger was either dead or not coming back and that she had to do something. But what good did it really do in the end? How did that possibly make her feel any better about the situation to tell Stephen Bonnet that she was carrying his child. I just fail to see how that did any good in any sort of circumstance, but perhaps you guys can shed some light on it, but I'm hella confused. (laughs) That's for sure. But like I said, I think that the key to this argument, it's not about Jimmy's paternity. It's easy to construe Roger's anger as that, but in reality, It's the honesty factor. All Roger wants is for Brianna to be honest with him. If she thinks that Stephen Bonnet is Jemmy's father, okay. If she thinks Roger is the father, okay. Just tell me. And that's why he asks her, Brianna, in your heart, what do you truly believe? And I get that that is a completely loaded question because hope, fear, and actuality are three very, very, very different things. While Brianna might hope and pray that Jemmy is Roger's baby, she also has the fear that he's Stephen Bonnet's child. And neither one of those things is reality. Like, she doesn't know the answer. And it doesn't matter what she believes. Because it's not science. There's nothing that can definitively say that Jemmy is Roger's or Jemmy is Stephen Bonnet's. And I know that there are some people out there in the show universe that will argue until they are blue in the face about who Jemmy's father is. But the truth is, nobody knows yet. I mean, if you want to know, go ask a book reader. That's all I got to say. Um, because at this juncture, 
there's no telling who is that baby's father, despite who the actor they have chosen looks like. Let's just put it that way. In the long run, most of the tension between Roger and Brianna boils down to the fact that neither one of them has truly found their place in the 18th century, and that with so much uncertainty surrounding their lives, it's really difficult for them to feel secure and feel like they are in a position that they have accomplished anything. And when you look at it from the outside, they're two fish out of water. Brianna, for sure, has adapted better than Roger has because that's kind of in her makeup, so to speak. And she was raised to have certain skills that were beneficial in that time. But in the end, I think there's a real struggle there because Brianna's an engineer and Roger is a history professor. How do you take those professional skills and translate them into something that is useful? in the 18th century. It's not like Claire's profession, medicine, where you can mold your skills to fit the time that you're in. Like, people are always going to need healers and doctors and surgeons. They're always going to get sick, and they're always going to need somebody to help them. What good is a history professor or an engineer? They both possess knowledge that isn't widely known and accepted yet. So how do you use that knowledge to make a life for yourself in the past. It's a difficult situation, and I get that Roger is feeling that stress, and that's why he wants to go home. And then when he finds out that Stephen Bonnet is still alive, which I'm glad that Brie finally told him, because I feel like now she can voice her fear a little bit more. But when Roger finds out that Stephen Bonnet is alive... That's huge. And I think that only makes him more confident in his decision to go home. And I think when Brianna sees that is Roger's decision on it and that that's how he's going to protect her and Jemmy, she's like, okay, if that's what we have to do, that's what we have to do. And that's that. Speaking of Bonnet, there is a scene between Stephen Bonnet and Roger in this episode, and it's a flashback. As always, Ed Spilliers is phenomenal, no matter what he's doing on screen. But I was trying to pinpoint in my head, in the long list of Outlander events and things that happen, I was trying to pinpoint where this scene falls. And I think that it is a scene between Bonnet and Roger after Wilmington, when he forces Roger back on the boat and they go up the coast. Just based on the conversation that they're having, Bonnet is talking about how a woman can be yours for anything. A trinket, coin, jewelry, even a ring. Just the fact that he is thinking about what he recently did to Brianna boils my blood. And the fact that Roger is talking to Bonnet about Brianna and neither one of them have any idea that they're talking about the same person, it sours my stomach a little bit because if Roger had known in that moment, he would have murdered him or at least tried to and probably got himself killed in the process. But 
It just really makes me sick that Bonnet is like, yeah, Lassie will do anything even for a ring. And Roger says, my lass is more concerned with words and deeds. And Bonnet looks at him and says, is that so? Oh, God. It just makes me sick, guys. Anyway. That coupled with the unhinged quality that Ed Spilliers brings to that character, like the the look in his eyes when Roger calls him out on his cheating at cards he seriously is scary and he does such a good job at being unpredictable and frightening. He could wail off and just slit your throat and wouldn't think twice about it. And that is frightening. I think that that's good to reiterate. Not only are we getting this scene that kind of fills in some of the blanks from what happened to Roger in that time frame when Bree has just met her parents and things are are starting to look up for her and Roger's stuck on a ship with this madman. It's very interesting. The title card of this episode was one thing that I really wanted to talk to you guys about because I really enjoy the title cards for a lot of these episodes and maybe at some point I will do a episode after I get all caught up with season six and stuff during next Droughtlander. I'll do an episode where I kind of talk about my favorite title cards and why they're my favorite. But this one is up there for me because it ties in so much from this story. And here is where I am going to talk a little bit about the rest of season five and how we see a few little nuggets trickled in here in the title card and in the episode. So I would fast forward about five to seven minutes, guys, if you don't want to listen to this. Whenever we get this title card, it's Claire sorting through some of the newspapers and magazines and books on the coffee table in the surgeon's lounge. And the first thing that she picks up is a magazine called Modern Building, and the cover story is The Most Fabulous Houses in North Carolina. And the house on the front of this magazine is the exact same house from Claire's dreamscape in the season five finale on the cover. So that's our first little nugget. The second magazine that we see is an edition of Medical History, which Claire's back in history, living it, and probably making some medical history with her discovery of penicillin a hundred years before it's documented in any sort of way. So we've got a copy of Medical History. Then we've got a Woman's Day magazine with a title article that says, preview of the Peanuts special, which I get that it's talking about Charlie Brown and Snoopy and the gang, but Peanuts are pretty dang important when we get around to the penultimate episode of season five, Journey Cake, when Claire makes peanut butter for everybody. And then we get around to the Impetuous Pirate, which was a phenomenal nod to all of us book readers. The Impetuous Pirate is a romance novel that Claire does pick up after a rough day at work. And it's something that her and Joe bond about. They would rather read romance novels than another medical journal. And I totally understand that completely. The fact that they brought this book to life and they got to design the cover and everything, I'm sure that was just a fantastic experience. It was really fun for us book readers. I know there was a lot of talk about it. And I, while I'm talking about season five, I'll go ahead and bring up the final nugget because 
when Brianna and Roger are having their argument, Brianna goes to Roger and she says, they're just words, Roger, words you were never meant to hear. And he pulls back from her and he says, words have consequences. This is a nod to the primary theme of season five, episode eight, called Famous Last Words, which is all about the impact that someone's final words has on those closest to them and how they want to be remembered, how they want to go down in history. So I found it was interesting that in this episode, this idea is already being kind of bandied about that words have consequences because it's Roger that brings this up in Famous Last Words. And it kind of plays with this idea once again of an idea or an action or a consequence rippling down through time and affecting other people's lives and the decisions that have to be made moving forward. So that is the conclusion of my season five spoilers. So the final topic that I really want to discuss in this episode is Jamie with Lieutenant Knox. Now, the big debate of this episode was, was Jamie's murder of Lieutenant Knox out of character? And there are times when I have seen fandom arguments spanning like hundreds and hundreds of comments where the people that only see show Jamie in this perfect version of him will argue and argue and argue that it's out of Jamie's character. It was way too cold-blooded. He never would have murdered anybody, yada, yada, yada. And you've got the other people who see the book side of him that is far less perfect. And they're like, no, it's totally in character for Jamie. He would totally do something like that. And you have the people in the middle who agree that it's in Jamie's character and haven't read the books. So where I stand on it, I think it was within Jamie's character. I think that I would think that whether I had just watched the show or whether I had read the books and watched the show, because the way that I see it is Jamie didn't really have much of a choice about it. If he had not killed Knox, Knox would have had Jamie arrested and the implications of that arrest would have trickled down to Claire, Roger, Brianna, all his tenants, Myrta, Fergus, Marsley, etc. There are a lot more people at stake here than just Jamie. It's not just about him anymore, as he's mentioned multiple times. And he does try to talk Knox out of it to explain. And I think the primary divide, like the insurmountable issue between Lieutenant Knox and Jamie is what they believe to be an honorable action. To Knox, honor is in his duty to king and country. He swore an oath to uphold the laws of the land. And he thought that he had that in common with Jamie. But in reality, Jamie's honor is in protecting and caring for his family and those closest to him and his tenants. So there's the divide there. And no matter how Jamie tries to explain it, Knox isn't going to understand fully. And there is a line that Jamie says, which I think adequately describes the situation because he says, I'm no traitor. I've cheated death in the duty of other men's ambitions. I've got the scars to prove it. And I've done so without complaint, but I will not stand by and watch my kin hunted like a dog for protecting those that can't protect themselves. 
it matters more to him. There's more honor and duty in protecting those he loves than serving someone's ambitions. And again, we see these callbacks to previous experiences. He's 100% talking about the cluster that happened because of his serving in the Jacobite army under Bonnie Prince Charlie. He's cheated death in the duty of Prince Charlie's ambitions to take the Scottish crown. And this is the situation that has resulted, basically. But I just find it very interesting that it's really just one issue. And I think that Knox really, really, really looked up to Jamie. And so he was thunderstruck when when he found out that Jamie had released the men in Hillsborough. And Jamie was playing both sides, walking between two fires. And it was Jamie that had been hiding Myrta all this time. I mean, that would be really hard to have your ideas of what is honorable and right and just, and then to find out that the person that you idolize and look up to and have looked to for advice is a traitor. (laughs) And Jamie's not, and we know that. He just has different ideas of, he has different priorities, right? But that would be hard. And I honestly commend Knox on holding fast to his ideals even at the expense of someone that he's sort of grown to care about. So, I mean, it's it's respectable behavior to be sure, but I don't think that it was out of character for Jamie to kill him either because Jamie had other people to protect besides himself. I've heard it said that his actions after Knox was murdered were a bit cold-blooded, and I understand that people could see it that way, but I don't really know how else he was supposed to behave. Like, he had to cover his tracks. I mean, otherwise people would have known that it was him, and it all would have been for nothing. That's kind of where I'm at, I guess. I don't think that it was out of character for Jamie, and I don't really think he had another choice about it. That about brings my thoughts on Season 5, Episode 5 to a close. My performance of the episode goes to Rick Rankin this week. I thought he was phenomenal in all of his scenes with Katrina and Sophie and Ed Spilliers. I really, really thought it was good. And it's it shows his character is growing a little bit. He's trying to be a good husband and he's trying to be supportive. And he wants to learn. He wants to learn a little bit of that husband's intuition. My quote of the episode is, If there is anything akin to God, I suppose memory must be the devil. Because I really liked the poetic nature of that comment. If time is anything akin to God, meaning all-powerful, all-knowing, and that give anything enough time and it'll all go away, basically, um, then memory must be the devil. It's the thing niggling you in the back of your head telling you that you made a mistake, that something went wrong, that you have lost those closest to you. So remembering all the things they've lost is the exact opposite of time erasing all wrongs, I guess. So yeah, I thought that was very poetic and I loved it. My honorable mention was a fantastic line from the priest when Claire is attending perpetual adoration and he says, no one's lost that's not forgotten. Claire kind of just feels a weight lift off of her a little bit, I think, because she realizes that 
Jamie's still with her. Even if he's not physically with her, he's in her head and in her heart and that he's in their daughter as well. And I think that that brings her a lot of comfort. So that line is certainly interesting. I think there is something to hold on to with that comment because anyone that's lost someone close to them kind of feels that they're gone forever, but they're never truly lost as long as someone is around to remember them. Alrighty, that wraps up my thoughts on 505 Perpetual Adoration. But as always, I put it to you guys to let me know what you thought about this episode. So without further ado, let's get into listener comments. Joan Cohen says, I thought the device of flipping between centuries worked well to give us some backstory and show how one moment can unexpectedly act as the catalyst for a series of events. I even appreciated the voiceover for once. And any episode that has Joe Abernathy and the tempestuous pirate is a winner for me, lol. I love Roger and Bree's arc, and I felt like they really grew as a couple. It was so important that Bree was finally honest. It brought them closer together, and she can start to heal now that she's not trying to work through her trauma alone. I also love Roger and Claire's mother and son relationship. He needs someone who truly understands who he is and what he's going through. I understand Jamie killing Lieutenant Knox. He's driven by protecting his family at all costs, and there probably wasn't any other way to prevent Knox from doing them harm. However, I was really bugged at his reaction. Jamie came across as rather cold-blooded in the way he covered up the murder. He didn't seem to have any remorse. I would have expected him to at least cross himself and say a quick prayer for the repose of Knox's soul before covering his tracks. Yeah, you're probably right. Jamie probably would have crossed himself. And I'm surprised with all the religion in this episode that he didn't. Yeah, that kind of was surprising. Something else that I really loved about the Knox and Jamie situation was when Jamie said that quote about not being a traitor. Knox really does look sympathetic for a moment and kind of like, but what am I supposed to do about this? And he says, Tryon will put a rope around your neck. Like Knox understands Jamie's actions. It doesn't mean he agrees with them, but he does understand. And I think that gave Jamie hope for a little bit until he realized that Knox's sense of duty was way too strong. So yeah, I get where people could think that it was cold-blooded. And yeah, perhaps if he had said like a prayer for the repose of Knox's soul or something along those lines, or even had a beat where he just kind of looks horrified at what he did for like a half a second. Maybe that would have made people feel a little bit better about it. I'm not sure, Joan. But yeah, I I value your input and I totally agree. There's probably something that they could have done to make things look a little bit better on Jamie's end. Crystal Smith Murphy says, I skipped this one when I did my season five rewatch. I didn't think that Jamie would have murdered Knox in cold blood like that. I did not like this storyline at all and felt that Jamie was acting out of character. I get that he was protecting Myrta, but still, if it had been a fair fight or if Knox got the jump on him and Jamie was defending himself, I could have handled that. Yeah, I understand Crystal, but at the same time, like I said, if Jamie had let Knox go, then Knox would have had Jamie arrested and literally everything would have gone to pot. I don't think Jamie had a choice about it, to be honest. Final comment of the night is from Sandy Viglione Corsi. 
She says, I liked the century swapping with regards to Graham Menzies and Jamie Fraser and brought back memories for Claire. That and Dr. Abernathy, who I love, gave her the reason to go to London, etc. It was about time Brie came clean with Roger. I still do not agree with Brie telling Bonnet that it was his child unless she truly believes it. He didn't deserve any kindness. As far as Jamie killing Knox, he had no choice. He was protecting his family. He did show a little remorse when he said that he was sorry that Knox didn't get a soldier's death. And I love Jamie's stoic face while listening to Knox's rambling and that famous side eye he does. (laughs) Yes, he does have this look where he's just like, I'm really trying to keep my shit together, but you're driving me nuts. (laughs) Yeah, I love that look on Sam's face. I do like the switching back and forth between the Graham Menzies plot and the 18th century. I feel like it helps to pull things together, even though I did struggle a little bit at first to kind of see the parallels. What threw me off was all the voiceovers. Like, it wasn't like there was one at the end and one at the beginning, like, prologue, epilogue type deals. It was kind of reminiscent of season one quality voiceovers, and it was really, really just felt weird. So, yeah, I did like the flashbacks, though, and we knew we were getting them when season five came out, but we didn't really know what kind of flashbacks we were getting. And one portion of that that I didn't mention in the actual episode, but that I do find very ironic, and I know it's in there because of this, is when Brianna says, man, you never really know what's coming, do you? Because at this point, they hadn't gone to London yet, they hadn't met Roger yet, and none of the dominoes had started to fall in the events that led to... Claire returning back through the stones. So at this point, they had no idea, absolutely none, what was going to happen. And so I really do, I love that line coming from Brianna, honestly, because she has no idea what's going to happen. Alrighty, guys. Well, that wraps up my analysis on Season 5, Episode 5, Perpetual Adoration. No major news this week on the Outlander front. We continue to get new stills and new little snippets about once or twice a week. I think it's going to start ramping up in the next couple of weeks. Looking forward to getting a new trailer soon, and I really, really hope it is soon. I'm preparing for my adventure to Seattle where I did secure a meet and greet with Lauren Lyle and Cesar Domboy. So I'm very excited about that. That is just under two weeks away. So. A little bit of news on the season six episode front. I know I told you guys I would let you know as soon as we came to an agreement on when our season six live was going to be. Angela and I have decided to do a celebration of one month to the premiere. So at seven o'clock on February 6th, one month until the premiere of season six, Angela and I will be getting together on my group TSF Obsassinax to go over everything else we can look forward to in season six that we didn't touch on in our first episode. We'll be breaking down the credits that we had released. We will be breaking down the teaser trailer that we got at New York Comic Con. Hopefully, 
We will have a full trailer coming out in the next couple of weeks and we can discuss that. And we will also be discussing the new scene that was dropped on Christmas Day, along with hopefully some new episode titles that we have had released along with any other snippets that may come across our screens before then. So make sure to join us on February 6th at 7 p.m. That is a Sunday and that will be Eastern time, 7 p.m. If you would like to join TSF Obsessed Snacks, it is 100% free. All you need to do is click join, fill out all three admission questions and agree to follow the rules, and one of the admins will get around to approving your request. If you do not fill out all of the admission questions, there are three of them, and agree to follow the rules, your request to join will be denied. So please make sure that you fill out all of those. And with all of that out of the way, guys, I am bringing this episode to a close for this week. Make sure to join me next week for 506 Better to Marry Than Burn. You guys stay safe out there. I'll chat at you later. Bye.